What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London, I'm Jason Palmer. And in New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Mexico's president has long loved to feed powers to the country's armed forces. Now they can share in the profits from the juicy contracts being handed out. We look into the growing worries that the army is swiftly getting just too much power. And 50 years ago, a novel called The Stepford Wives hit the shelves and pretty much defined feminist horror. It's still a big influence on that genre, especially as the rights that women won back then seem to be increasingly under threat today. But first... After a dramatic weekend contest full of maneuvers and intrigue, Britain will today get a new prime minister, its third in seven weeks. Members of parliament belonging to the ruling Conservative Party were tasked with nominating a candidate for the leadership by 2 p.m. on Monday. For a while, it looked like there might be three in the running. A previous incumbent, Boris Johnson, who won a landslide election victory in 2019 but was forced to resign from office amid scandal, looked poised to make a comeback. But he withdrew. Still, nobody knew for sure until the last minute whether it would be a race between former Chancellor Rishi Sunak and leader of the House of Commons Penny Mordaunt, or whether a single candidate would prevail. Then at 2 p.m., Sir Graham Brady, in charge of running the contest, made the announcement. Good afternoon. Um, as returning officer in the leadership election, I can confirm uh, that we have received one valid nomination. <laughs> Rishi Sunak is therefore elected as leader of the Conservative Party. Opposition parties denounced Mr. Sunak's coronation and called on him to seek a mandate from the public in a general election. Labour thinks that we should be having a general election. I think everybody who I've spoken to, the public, have said we should be having a general election. There is no mandate now. The Conservatives have completely broken their promises. That looks unlikely for the moment. Mr. Sunak's task now is to reassure markets while trying to unite his fractious party. Rishi Sunak is a former Chancellor of the Exchequer who was involved in the ejection of Boris Johnson from office this summer. Andrew Palmer is The Economist's Britain editor. He entered Parliament in 2015, so he's made a meteoric rise. He's associated with fiscal orthodoxy and sound money, which is a good combination given some of the problems that now face Britain. And Andrew, how did he get to this high office? We've talked about the turmoil in British politics on the show recently, but just walk us through what's been happening this last week. Well, I might start, John, a little 
earlier because he contested the last leadership election over the summer and came second to Liz Truss. So it looked as though he'd actually gone for the top job and failed. And now he himself is making this extraordinary comeback. So Liz Truss won came into office on September the 6th. Within six weeks, she was off again, having done this disastrous job with a mini budget that spooked the markets, losing all authority, and basically running out of road. So she resigned last Thursday, and a very, very accelerated leadership contest was then set in motion. And on Monday, we had this moment by which any candidate who wanted to run had to have secured 100 nominations from Tory MPs. Boris Johnson over the weekend seemed like he might be in the running, but decided on Sunday night to withdraw. That left one other person potentially in the race against Mr. Sunak, an MP called Penny Mordaunt, who was scrambling on Monday morning to try and reach this magic 100 nominations number and could not do so. So she, just before the deadline, also withdrew from the running. And in effect, that left Mr. Sunak with a coronation to enjoy. Uh, And he was immediately proclaimed leader of the Conservative Party. I am humbled and honoured to have the support of my parliamentary colleagues and to be elected as leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party. It is the greatest privilege of my life to be able to serve the party I love and give back to the country I owe so much to. And today he will be in Downing Street as Britain's next Prime Minister. Do you think he's the right candidate for the moment? Well, for the moment is a very good way of putting it. I think of the three credible candidates facing the Tory MPs, he is the best. He does represent a return to competent, wonky, technocratic, sound money conservatism. And in the short term, that is a good choice. We have a medium-term fiscal plan that is due to be unveiled on October the 31st. The job of that plan is to reassure the markets and to show that the books can be balanced. And a combination of Mr. Sunak and we assume Jeremy Hunt, the current chancellor, is a reassuring one from that perspective. However, once you start to think about a longer-term timetable, then the prognosis for Mr. Sunak and for the country he now leads is less good. And why is that? A couple of reasons. One is that the party he runs, the Conservative Party, has not suddenly gone from kind of bunch of fratricidal maniacs to peace-loving hippies. It is still a very, very discordant and fractious party, and rifts can open up at any point, and they are likely to because of the very hard choices that Mr. Sunak now needs to make. The country is facing a cost-of-living crisis, a high inflation environment, higher mortgage costs as the Bank of England raises interest rates. On top of that, the fiscal plan that I mentioned is going to involve a combination, we expect, of tax rises and spending cuts. Those are going to be deeply painful. They are going to be politically toxic. And so you can imagine very, very quickly disgruntled Tories and an unhappy electorate combining to undermine him. And what would that undermining look like? Would it be an internal matter or would that trigger a general election, do you think? Well, I think in the first instance, we're probably quite a long way away, at least I hope so, from another leadership contest. 
So I think probably what it would look like is whispers of dissatisfaction, you know, briefing against Mr. Sunak, polls that undermine him further. There's a very big lead now for the opposition Labour Party. So all of that can gather steam. It's possible over time that we get back into the situation that we've been in most recently, where Tory MPs start to rebel against party discipline, and it becomes clear that he can't command a majority. At that point, it's going to be very, very hard for the Tories to run yet another leadership election, and the moral case for a general election will become almost unarguable. I'm not predicting that, I should say. I think it's perfectly possible that Mr. Sunak runs from now through to a general election, which is scheduled to happen by January 2025. But I also wouldn't be confident in that time frame. There is an awful lot for him to get right if he is going to stay in office for that period of time, let alone him then winning the election that follows. You mentioned earlier the problems that he's facing, including high cost of living, inflation, rising mortgage costs, What do you suspect is the first thing he does when he comes into office? Well, first thing he has to do is nominate members of his cabinet. So there will be a choreographed bit of theatre today. He will enter Downing Street after Liz Truss has departed it. He will then start to name members of his cabinet. I think it's fairly likely that he will try to draw on all the wings of the Tory party. Then the next big moment is on Monday with the fiscal plan. That will be the point at which he has to make these very, very difficult decisions. It is possible that that date will get pushed off a little, but the timetable is tight for a reason. The markets are watching. The Bank of England is due to make a decision on monetary policy next Thursday, and they will want to have some sense of what the fiscal stance is before they make that decision. So very, very quickly, we will get this absolutely defining moment in his premiership. And Although it won't be, I think, the same as the mini-budget that blew up the Truss administration, it is going to set the political weather for at least the winter. And finally, Sunak is going to be the first prime minister of Asian heritage. What does that say, do you think, about, about Britain and about the Tories? Yeah, I mean, this is a a moment of celebration, actually. It's a pretty depressing landscape for Britain at the moment, but this is a bright spot. The leadership contest over the summer had a very strong and varied field in terms of gender and race. As you say, Mr. Sunak is Britain's first ethnic minority prime minister. He comes into office during Diwali. These are good things. Unfortunately, they are no guarantee of success in running the country. And there are other things that will be less helpful to him, I think. Financially, he's extremely well off and he's about to preside over a package of policies which will hit people in the pocket and worsen their stand of living. That is going to be politically a difficult trick to pull off. So there are things to like and celebrate in this moment and there's a lot of things to feel nervous about. All right, Andrew, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, John. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org economist.
Since he was elected in 2018, Mexico's president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, has been slowly beefing up the armed forces. The moves haven't always been popular, especially among the elites. Last month, protesters took to the streets, rallying against his plans to transfer control of the National Guard to the army. Those protests didn't really go anywhere, and the changes just keep coming. Now there are concerns a more powerful army could stifle the country's relatively young democracy. This month, Mexican lawmakers voted to maintain the army's street presence through to 2028. It was due to run out in 2024. Sarah Burke is The Economist's bureau chief for Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean. The other thing that happened this month is they voted to transfer the National Guard, which replaced the federal police in 2019, to the Ministry of Defense, essentially leaving Mexico without a civilian federal enforcement agency. It's part of a gradual increase in the power and responsibility of the army that's taken place over a number of years, but particularly under this administration. So talk us through that. In in what way is the army gathering up more responsibility? I mean, we've talked about this a bit before, Jason, but it's really increased over the last three years of this administration. So it's always had a role in fighting crime ever since 2006, when it deepened under the then president, Felipe Calderon, who decided to take on the drug gangs. But under Mr. López Obrador, they're now doing more of that. So they're more responsible for fighting crime. But they're also doing a lot more in terms of civilian functions and playing a role in the economy. So he's handed to the armed forces around 70 civilian functions, according to Mexico United Against Crime, which is an NGO here. They're running ports, they're building a tourist railway, they're helping to run social programs, and they're even clearing invasive algae from beaches. And they're keeping the profits from some of this as well. So what's what's behind it then, this, this relentless march towards more responsibility, more duties in, in the community? Well, it's really about, in this case, Mr. López Obrador giving them more power. It's also about the failure of the governments here to boost institutions and make them work. And so Mr. López Obrador seems to think that giving the army things to do will make it quicker, more effective and potentially better. It doesn't necessarily seem like it's playing out this way at all. I mean, the new tasks that the army is carrying out aren't going particularly well. Even in fighting crime, for example, crime is terrible here. Homicides remain at horribly high levels. And then there's also infrastructure budgets are running over and things are actually being built slower than they're meant to be. So it doesn't seem like they're necessarily doing a great job of things. And what struck me about what you said before was that they would be uh, making money from some of these efforts. Potentially the most troubling element of the new role they have is really in the economy. They've got many ways now to make their own money. So first of all, they've got more budget because they've been given more money by the president. Second of all, they've got the budgets that they use to build the infrastructure buildings, such as airports and the railway that we mentioned. But they also are keeping some of the profits. So a company run by the Ministry of Defence is going to run the train and keep the profits from it. So they will have an independent ways of getting money, not just from the government budget. And it does appear that some generals are encouraging this. So a group of hackers obtained private military documents last month. There were plans in there to run a commercial airline, for example, to set up hotels. So really, it all highlights how broad the influence of the armed forces is becoming. And we've seen this in other places like Pakistan and Egypt, and it doesn't necessarily end well. 
Well, how do you mean? What what risks does it pose that the army becomes a, a money-making enterprise? Well, I don't think there's a prospect here that generals are going to seize political power, at least at the moment. But their growing influence is dangerous for Mexico's democracy. Its growing wealth and influence will strengthen the executive branch in some ways, but will also weaken its civilian leaders, including the president. So you might think that, for example, the army having more power will potentially have more of a say in the corridors of power. You know, and the militarization of law enforcement and the eradication of the federal police force also means that the civilian government is basically not executing one of its most important functions, which is to provide security to its citizens. And by giving so much money to the army, it means that other things aren't being funded. So the civilian police forces at the municipal and state level or the attorney generals are woefully underfunded. But it's also other areas such as education or health, which the army's expanded budget is eating into their budgets. And so are there any forces that can sort of stop this or are there any challenges to this? Yeah, I mean, so the new laws are being challenged. They still have to pass through some of the state parliaments. And one of the houses said that the army's growing clout should be tempered by having funding back for state and municipal police forces that had earlier been cut by legislators. And it also said that Congress should have oversight of the army's public security work. But again, we don't know how strong that's going to be. And so it's really unclear what checks and balances there will be on the army and its growing powers. And in the economy, it's very hard to see what checks there will be. And so at the mention of checks and balances, then the notion is that essentially the executive branch hoovers up all the power of Mexico's democracy. Well, that and even within the executive branch, that the army has an unduly large say on what happens. Mr. López Obrador campaigned at one point on putting the military back in its barracks, but it appears he's really changed. And I think he risks creating an army that will really have much more influence and will demand much more influence over what is still quite a young democracy. Sarah, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason. In the early 1970s, the feminist movement in America was organized, it was empowered, and it was winning. We hope that one day a woman will be able to choose whether she wants to stay home and take care of her husband and children, and also be paid for it, recognized for it, and get Social Security and all the other benefits that go along with working, because she is a laborer. Women's rights expanded in leaps. Roe versus Wade enshrined women's dominion over their own bodies. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, then a tenacious activist, took sex discrimination cases to the Supreme Court and won. Not everyone saw all this as progress. Conservative Americans decried what they saw as a dangerous upheaval of women's roles in society. They thought the culture war was being fought and would be finished then. But one author's take on it all still has weight. Ira Levin published The Sept Wives 50 years ago in 1972. It really grew out of the intellectual ferment of the early 1970s, particularly second-wave feminism. Rachel Lloyd is The Economist's deputy culture editor. The feminist horror novel has continued to resonate today and inspire filmmakers working in the 21st century. So let's start 50 years ago then. What is The Stepford Wives about? Joanna, the protagonist, is a young woman who's moved from New York with her family to the town of Stepford in Connecticut. She's ambitious. She's a photographer. She's hoping to meet like-minded women in this small picturesque town. What she finds there is 
not like-minded women. It's women who would rather wax the hardwood floors than grab a cup of coffee. The Stepford Wives are perfectly turned out. They are very well dressed. They have very perky boobs. They're very happy to wait on their husbands and provide them with sandwiches and coffee whenever they need. Their kitchens are immaculate and there's nothing they'd rather be doing than completing domestic chores. There's been several iterations of The Stepford Wives on the screen. There was one in 2004 starring Nicole Kidman. Welcome to Stepford. Stepford is the family paradise. It has no crime, no poverty, and no pushing. Good morning, ladies. Wait, you work out dressed like this? Which differed from the novel slightly in that it had the women's enthusiasm for domestic labour deriving from a nanochip that was implanted into their brains. So in that film, the process was reversible. In the original novel, it's not quite so optimistic. The husbands actually murder their wives and replace them with eerily lifelike robots provided by a former technician at Disney, which is quite a grim outlook on the relationship between the sexes. Men would actually rather have a robot that waits on them hand and foot than a fully-fledged partner. And it's a grim view that you say has some resonance today. Absolutely. I was struck when rereading the novel that it's very dark, it's very witty, and it dramatizes a backlash to women's rights that we are seeing in a different format today. There's a nostalgia for the values of the 1950s in some quarters. On TikTok, there's women who are glorifying being staying-at-home girlfriends. Classic means tradition refined. It means elegance and being poised and rejecting the idea of modern feminists, which is you can dress however you want, you can dress slovenly and never wash your hair, and every time is wine o'clock, and not taking seriously how wonderful it is to be a really feminine woman. So that is to say that the Stepford Wives aesthetic, let's call it, is still having cultural influence. Absolutely. I think it's most evident in a new film called Don't Worry Darling, which is set in a 1950s inspired desert town called Victory. All of you wives. With you all the time. We men, we ask a lot. Can't you see? We ask for strength. <laughs> food at home. A house clean. Where the women stay at home and drink martinis and hoover and the men go off to work. They are the undisputed breadwinners. The protagonist of Don't Worry Darling is a woman called Alice, who's played by Florence Pugh. And she moves to victory with her husband, Jack, played by Harry Styles. And Alice starts to suspect that something is wrong in victory. She's particularly put off by Frank, who's played by Chris Pine, who's the sort of enigmatic leader of Victory. And Olivia Wilde, the director, has said that that character is inspired by Jordan Peterson, a controversial academic, and his ideas about order and chaos uh, sort of run through the film. The film falls short in the fact that it doesn't really delve deeply into the men's motivations for taking their wives to victory. It suggests that they're driven by a sense of emasculation, of failing to thrive in the modern world and to support their families and their wives. But it doesn't provide a particularly psychologically compelling portrait of these men. Well, never mind the emasculated men. What about women and their rights and how all this looks 50 years on? I think the reason Stepford Wives and Don't Worry Darling are resonant stories today is because that nostalgia is still a powerful force. Populist politicians are still talking about traditional family values. And many of the legal gains that feminists achieved in the 1970s have either been halted or pushed back. Roe v. Wade was overturned earlier this year. The Equal Rights Amendment is still languishing in legal limbo. And in general, this idea that sending women back to the kitchen is a way to deal with unruly women is one that remains powerful for people that think that gender equality has gone too far. Thanks very much for joining us, Rachel. Thanks for having me.
That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. Or leave us a rating wherever you listen. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Seven in 10 full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact, supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company.